uh, a little while ago, we started talking as a church about how we wanted to engage in this crisis that was going on at the border, recognizing it's, it's become a lie, a, a natural tendency, but a dishonest one among Americans to say, oh, someone ought to do something and it ought to be the government, somebody else, instead of saying, one, they're typically pretty ineffectual at that kind of stuff, and two, it's still the job of the church. That does not, I mean, the, a, a, a government taking a responsibility does not take it from the church. And God instructed us with this type of stuff long before there were um, governments set up, certainly ours. And so to say, how are we going to engage with this as the body of Jesus Christ? How are we going to be a blessing in this? And so uh, we sent a handful of people, um, really by divine direction, um, to El Paso and, uh, and to begin the conversation of how could we as South Spring Baptist Church be a part of the Capital C Church to impact what's going on there um, how do we come alongside um, the, the immigrant population on both sides of the border? How do we come alongside the government officials um, on both sides of the border? How do we be the church to all the, uh, no matter what your role is in that, it's hard and, and, and difficult and heartbreaking. And, and so how do we as a church come alongside these people? And so one of the things we know is that anywhere in the world where there are people suffering, um, there's already people there in the name of Jesus ministering to those people. Um, you're not going to read about that in the newspaper or whatever. You're not going to see this. It's not going to be reported, but I promise you it's true. There is someone in the name of Jesus everywhere engaging with people who are suffering. We don't need to, as South Spring, we don't need to go like, oh, we've, we've got all the answers here. We're, no, how, do we get along, how do we come alongside the people who are already doing it? And we get there and discover that one of the ministries that is being the most effective um, are the Texas Baptists. And, and really engaging there. And so they are one of the organizations, uh, ministry organizations we're partnering with. Um, we have been gathering up supplies for to, and our partnership with some of these various groups, these various ministries. And um, as the Texas Baptists, um, as we've been communicating with them, um, they sent a brother, Daniel. Um, come on up, if you will, Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel um, uh, Rang, Rangel. Say it correctly? Rangel. See, that was... That's why I didn't say it in the first service, because I knew I'd get it wrong. <laughs> and um, yeah, I said it East Texas style. The, um, uh, uh, and, and Daniel is with the Texas Baptist and is, um, has, has brought information with him today. If you want to find out more about this river ministry, uh, make sure and meet him after the service. Um, back on, on the table, he's got all kinds of information. We'd love for you to know um, and to pray and how to be praying for us. And then he is going to pray over us and our role as South Spring and engaging in this ministry as well. So how cool that he's come from Fort Worth to, uh, um, to pray over us. We're so grateful. So if you will, yes. share with us that I, I just, with us. I just want to let you know that at that table, if you only take one thing, there's a flyer here. It's just a general invitation. It says, come help us share the hope of Christ on the border. But on the back of the flyer are the 16 River Ministry missionaries. You saw one of them here, Ruth, and her father there working, and Noel Laredo and Laredo. Uh, uh, pray, pray, pray for them. And, and this little piece of paper doesn't have any power, but if you place it in your Bible and it reminds you to pray, there's power in prayer. Mm -hmm. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, first, we'd like to thank you for your presence. And we'd like to mm -hmm. thank you, Lord, for the, because, because of the relationship we have you, Lord, uh, you have filled us with your, with your mercy. You have filled us with your grace. You have filled us with your love. And you have filled us with this, Lord, so that we can share your grace, mercy, and love with the people around us, Lord. And we pray now specifically for the, the ministry on the border. Uh, not only with the immigrants, but all the different needs that are found there and in Mexico, Lord. And we pray that, that this church, the vision you have placed for them to work on the border and to fulfill needs, 
that there will be a church that shares grace, mercy, and love to the people on the border and to the people and, the, and these immigrants. And, and we know, Lord, that, that once they know you personally, they too will be filled with grace, uh, mercy, and love. And wherever they go, whether they return back to their countries, whether they come to the United States, whether they stay in Mexico, wherever they go, they too will be able to share grace, mercy, and love. Mm -hmm. We ask all this in your name, name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Thank Danny. You, we appreciate you being here. Um, all right. So as we um, continue to dive into the book of John here, we're in John chapter 20, and we're, um, we're going to wrap, we're going to connect to last week um, when Paul preached with verse 10. Verse 10 says, then the disciples went back to their homes. Um, okay, so this already is a little confusing, this idea, there because they're in the Jerusalem area. It doesn't mean their home as in the home they grew up in. That would be in Galilee somewhere. Um, what this probably is meaning is the home where they're staying, maybe even in Bethany, maybe with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But um, they're going back. Now, why? It, it, it's hard to know in this. What we know is that they're there. They, they see this, this grave clothes. And the grave clothes make it abundantly clear to them. The Romans didn't take the body. The Jews didn't take the body. Grave robbers didn't take the body. The tomb is empty. There's no one in it. And yet the grave clothes, the, the linen they would have wrapped Jesus' body in with all the spices, 75 pounds of myrrh and other things, um, if I remember correctly, would have been, they're all like there, as if the body that was wrapped up is suddenly not wrapped up anymore. Like the, the, the wrappings just collapse, like, you know, like Yoda's little blanket when he vanishes. It just kind of collapses there on that, right there on that, on that slab. And then the headpiece is folded neatly where it's supposed to be. Well, no one does that. I mean, no one robbing a grave does that. The Romans would have taken all of it. The, the Jews would have taken all of it. Immediately, Peter and John say, that's really suspicious. What could this mean? You know, there was that thing that Jesus kind of gently hinted at when he said in no uncertain terms, the Jews will turn me over to the Romans, the Romans will kill me, I will be put in a grave, and in three days I will raise from the grave. And they go, for the first time, apparently, hey, you don't think, you don't think he's been risen from the dead, do you? you no way. And so, but that's the only explanation that's left, which is fascinating, that these guys are convinced that something fishy has happened here, and the only thing that makes sense to them is this. And their response to this is to leave. Again, I don't know why. why what, what, does, what draws them home? Are they afraid the officials are going to show up any minute and they don't want to be caught there? Are the Romans going to show up? Or maybe there's Romans who are unconscious laying on the ground. We know from the other Gospels there may be other Roman soldiers still laying there. So are they going to wake up and be like, we don't want to be anywhere around when these guys wake we, we don't know. But they leave. Now, I have a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek guess as to why they left, and we discover it in the next verse. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So here's the thing. Somebody saw that. Somebody kissed. Here's it coming. So um, men, I'm going to use this as a little bit of a teachable moment here. We literally, apparently, there's different opinions on this, but what I think most apparently seems to be happening is that Peter and John look in the tomb, they realize what this means, and they, standing there is Mary, weeping because she thinks someone has stolen Jesus' body, so they leave. Again, 
Well, I, this is not great behavior on the men's part. Even jokingly, like, is that why they left? Is like, uh, you know how sometimes men get that way around women when they're crying. Like, I think I'm just going to, you know, head on, head on out here while you're crying. Like that. Regardless, this is not okay. Like, it, it, is it that they just missed each other? They actually didn't pass. It? It's all that's possible. But the way these two language, these two verses are squished together, really makes me think that they left Mary standing there crying. And and guys, this is not cool. Like. This is not okay for them to do. What's wild is, look at this. Um, again, no extra charge for this. Just a little marriage counseling here for you. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is Peter who left Mary at the... Now, Mary's not his wife, but he left, as far as we know. So he left Mary at the, at the tomb. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. Likewise, husbands. So he's just done all this, past, all this beautiful poetry about how wives can be good wives. Like 10 verses. Really, It's really awesome. Then he gets to husbands. Now, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is a very sweet way of saying what it says in the Greek, which is, husbands, if you're going to live with your wives, you're going to have to think. <laughs> it's really very close to what the Greek says. You're going to have to know some things. Uh, maybe not many, but a few things. <clears throat> you're going to have to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, one, because they are co-heirs with you in the grace of life. Now, the language here, really intriguing. We could spend a lot of time here. You can imagine I can. I'm not going to. But this idea of going, she's the weaker vessel. The language here, the less potent piece of equipment. okay, The less dangerous weapon. Or maybe even the person who only has 49% of the vote while you have 51% of the vote. In the gospel, in the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus Christ introduces us to, power and authority exist to serve. That's, that's the only reason they exist, is to serve. Jesus, the husband represents Jesus in the same way that the wife represents the church. Remember, Peter, who represents the church, tells Jesus, do not go to Jerusalem and don't die. Jesus does not need the church's authority to go die for it. The reason husbands have more authority in the family, apparently, is so that we can, therefore, sacrifice and serve and die for the wife without her permission we don't have to have her permission to serve her and die for her that may feel weirdly unequal and certainly it is it's not intended to be um, fairness is not a high priority in the gospel um, love and sacrifice is and this picture being created that we should be because here's the thing you have to show honor to them so it's it's kind of the image years ago smalley and trent wrote a book called the hidden value of a man and they open it with this imagery of of Superman in denial of the fact that he's Superman. He thinks he's only um, Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter. In the first moments after he wakes up, he destroys his house, he kills everyone in his family, he, he sends the cat into orbit. Like it's everything about the, the situation is horrific because Superman doesn't get to act like he's not Superman. There are consequences for that. And so in this saying, listen, you're more powerful in some way. Therefore, you must be more gentle, more careful, more honoring than she is. You have to be the one who honors more carefully. You have to be the one who serves more carefully. And when you get that all the verses before were about how wives should honor their husbands, and then he's going, now men, in the same way, you should be this, but more. Because you're the one who has to honor her as a co-heir. In the kingdom, we talked about this in the apologetics seminar we did with the students and parents yesterday, which was excellent. 
Love to have you guys be a part of that next time we do it. It was a, it was a great way for students and adults to have these conversations. But this was one of the questions one of the girls asked was about this. How come there's not, there's not equal between men and women in the Bible? What a great question. And you're thinking, like, I'd love to know the answer to that. Well, you should have been there yesterday, so sorry. <laughs> um, and so as you engage with us to go, this, this, how do we serve one another? How do we love one another in this? In the kingdom, the only authority structure is Jesus and everyone else. There's the big brother and all the little siblings. And we're co-heirs with him as his little siblings. That's us as co-heirs with you in the grace of life so your prayers will not be hindered. This is Peter who apparently somewhere between wandering off and leaving a woman crying in a garden in a tomb and being later on down the road writing this letter realized, you know what, as men, we ought to be gentle. We ought to be kind. We ought to be intentionally serving. He does not model that well here, um, unfortunately. So they wander off, and it's going to be unfortunate what, what happens because of that. So they wander off. Not sure why, but they do. Verse 12, Mary... So she weeps, she's weeping, she stoops to look into the tomb, because the, the way the tombs are built that way. Um, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Catch, Peter and John didn't even explain to her that Jesus had been risen from the grave. They didn't explain to her the significance of the grave clothes. They just left. Like what a, That might have comforted her a little in her weeping, right? So here she is looking in. She doesn't see grave clothes. She sees two angels dressed in white. Okay, so hermeneutics, the art and science of studying Scripture, is a something that all Christians must be talented at. We must learn these skills. The step one in doing that is the word observe. Okay? What do you observe about the angels? Group participation is acceptable here. Yeah? <laughs> They're sitting. Okay, one, that's probably because the tombs, even though we're going to look at a picture here in a second that makes this big cavernous tomb, no. The tombs were very small. It's, some of you have been in first century Jewish tombs. Um, uh, I'm, I mean, I have to stoop over like this the whole time I'm in it. They're not meant for hanging out. Um, so they're sitting in there. Okay, good? Not for living people anyway. What, what else do you see? Hey, there's two. That's so weird to see two. Usually when you see an angel, you see one angel. Okay. Good, but we see two here. What else do you notice? Okay, they're sitting at the head and the foot of this slab where Jesus' body had been laid. That's, that can't be an accident that that's just thrown in there. That type of detail matters when we see it. It matters. Anything else you notice, by the way? What's that? Yeah, they're wearing white clothes, right? They're glowing, kind of this glowing white thing that angels seem to do sometimes with their clothing. The garments are glowing white. Good. They're not terribly scary, apparently. Like often angels, when they show up, people fall on their face and they're terrified. They think they're going to die. This doesn't seem to be the case here. But what we see instead, what's going on with these angels? They're just standing there talking, guarding, waiting. Keep in mind, these are maybe some of the same angels who were ready to be called at a moment's notice to destroy the Romans and rescue Jesus from the cross. They now know Jesus is resurrected. They know what's happened. Like they get this at a spiritual level that, would, that humans may not understand until we are resurrected. The angels are going like, no, this, this is done. Like this has happened. Jesus is raised from the dead. This could be like angel tourism. We want to go see the tomb. Like that there's a line and they had to sign up in order for who gets to go first. And they're sitting here going like, this is it. 
This, I mean, they're talking to one another like, this is the tomb? Can you believe it? The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who lived as a human being for all these years, and then they killed him, and then, then he, they laid him here, and he raised from right here from the dead? I mean, we're right here sitting here on the spot. That's amazing. There, there certainly would be a celebration for them, which also explains why they would ask someone who comes in the tomb crying, why are you crying? What is there to cry about? There's nothing to cry about. The, the, the solution of the gap between Almighty God and His creation, it's solved. What could you possibly be crying about? Of course, that's their perspective, right? She doesn't get that. So let me, I also think maybe there's something else really cool going on. Remember we talked about the rejuification, meaning learning for the last about 100 years or less or so, Christians have, and, and Bible students have begun doing a much better job of going like, wait, 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 there was... Jesus was a Jew, and these people were Jewish, and they lived in a Jewish era, and there's, there's Jewish pictures and imagery and teaching woven all through these Gospels, especially John uh, and, and Mark, who's writing probably for Peter, and, and Matthew, who was a Jew. Like, there's a special, it's woven in there, and so we've seen it over the last couple of years studying John. We've seen it all over the place. We spent a few weeks, John Keeling, I spent a few weeks teaching on, the, on some of the, the feasts and festivals, so we would see it wrapped in there, right? So, so here, there's some pictures. So over the years, people have painted, this is a pretty modern one, obviously, um, imagery of, now, one, that's a cavernous room. It, 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 I promise you it did not look like that. It was not a big room. But otherwise, that's, that's a pretty good picture. It shows two guys. Um, one of the other gospel writers refers to it as two men who are, who are here. And so it, it maybe, maybe they looked like men, even though they, that Mary knew they were angels. Um, maybe another picture to kind of help us get a better imagery of it. Again, totally wrong from a tomb perspective. That's not at all what the tomb would have looked like. Um, there would not have been some ornate stone there. There would not, certainly not have been a square door. I don't understand that at all, how, why they would put a square. Anyway, so the way that exactly would look is a little weird. The way this huge door it would be very much smaller. Um, they, they have first century tombs, and you, to climb in through the little rectile, the rectangle of these, of these doors is really hard, the big stone, whatever. Anyway, so, but notice. It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, so let me teach you about something. Check this out. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid. So keep that picture up, please. It's called the mercy seat. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid called the mercy seat. This is the exact spot where the presence of Yahweh was supposed to sit in the temple. From this place, he dispensed mercy to the faithful. When you had the sprinkling of the blood of lambs or bulls on the mercy seat, this was to dispense purity to the people, to the faithful. Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews explains it to us in Hebrews 9. A tent was prepared. The first section where there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covering on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Um, this, is, this is the thing that, you know, Indiana Jones finds in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, except there's not sand in it. These three things are in it. And listen to this, verse 5, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Hilasterion is the Greek word for mercy seat. Hilasterion. It means, it, it has to do with appeasing, expiation, propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice that restores the relationship between God and man. That's what it means. 
a sacrifice made by another person to pay for my sins, the mercy seat. So again, go back to the picture. Now, the mercy seat probably looks something like, like this. Again, we got another one that's a little clearer. Do you see it? So I think clearly what's going on here is that these two angels are now establishing that stone slab where the blood of Jesus would be mixed in with those spices, on the, wrapped in that linen. This is the new mercy seat. This is where man, his relationship to God, is restored here. This is the new mercy seat. That's what's going on with the angels. They're establishing a theological presence, truth, in that moment for us to see. Now, what's really cool and what you're going to really love is now what's going on with Mary. So here's what boggles my mind with this. She seems to me super underwhelmed by running into two angels in a tomb. I mean, like, she, she, the, this picture, it, doesn't, it cannot be right because she, they hold her attention for about three seconds. She doesn't lie down at their feet. She looks in there. She sees two angels, and she asks, they ask her, why are you weeping? And she says, someone's taken my Lord. Do you know where he is? Apparently they don't, so she turns. That's how long they hold her attention. That's fascinating to me. That's, to me, that's really interesting. Unlike, it's, it's, it's a, her unwillingness here to be distracted is amazing. There's a lot of different opinions. What's going on here? Did, did, why, didn't Jane, why didn't Peter and John see the angels? What, what was going on? Were they hiding from them? Were they, what, I mean, no one really knows what's going on here. What we know is she stoops down in. Sorry, she sees two angels. She has a very short conversation with them. And then she leaves she turns away from them. You know why? I think because they aren't Jesus. And that's all she cares about. She's here to find Jesus. So, Jay, so Peter and John, not distracting to her. Two angels sitting in a tomb, which might catch my attention, not distracting to her. Are you Jesus? No. Are you Jesus? No. Well, that's who I'm looking for. Has anyone found Jesus? So she turns around. It's this her unwillingness to be distracted. It's not even, by the way, Someone has taken the Lord. She says that later. In this part, she says, someone has taken my Lord. This is a personal pursuit for her. Where is my Jesus? Who's got him? And, and nothing's going to distract her from this. It's, it's, it's stunning to me. When, we, when um, Davis uh, Buchanan was teaching, was teaching a few weeks ago with the college students, and, uh, and as they were looking through James, engaging with this message through the Jewish teaching of, of, of the, the defiance, defying this idea that faith and works are somehow in opposition to each other. Even that that's what the book of James is trying to teach, which it isn't. Mary's faith is this. I'm looking for Jesus. Mary's works is this. I'm looking for Jesus. They aren't in opposition to each other. That's the, that's the message that is there. What a great picture as we look at this. Who is this woman who is so single-mindedly driven to find Jesus that angels in a tomb are of no interest to her? What is that like? And Luke 7. And I turn towards, so, so Luke 7 is this great little story where Jesus goes into a wealthy uh, man's home. 
and, and, um, and it just doesn't seem to fit in very well. And a bunch of Jesus' less than savory friends join him in this wealthy man's home. And, and the wealthy man is not okay with this. Simon is his name. And Simon's not okay with this. And a woman comes in and breaks ointment over his feet and with her tears begins washing his feet and with her hair wiping up, uh, cleaning his feet. Now, we saw a similar story to this. It's not the same one where Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, does something like this in their home. That was in John. This account is not in John. Um, this is a separate one. It's another person. We don't get this person's name for sure. We have a tradition. But so what happens, this woman does this. Simon throws a fit about it. How dare you're letting this unclean woman touch you, right? You can imagine this conversation went super well with Jesus, right? If you know him at all, like, yeah, this is going to go well. Confront him on dealing with unclean people, unwanted people. So then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, I love that. He turns to the woman but says to Simon, right, do you see this woman already? Do you even see her? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? He said to the woman, again, ignoring them, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, she, this woman is not named. But immediately after, in the book of Luke, we are introduced to three women, Joanna, Susanna, and Mary the Magdalene. Mary from the town of Magdala. And traditionally, she is the one who has been assigned as the one who washed Jesus' feet in this moment. A woman potentially of ill repute, whatever that means. We do know that she had had seven demons. Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast out of her. What type of life had she lived to be possessed by seven demons? In this moment, and the tradition is that this woman is Mary. Mary Magdalene. Traditionally, it's her. Much had been forgiven. The mercy seat was well appreciated by Mary. She understood her need to be forgiven and to be saved. She's looking for Jesus and not even two angels are going to distract her. I read this and I immediately am struck by the things I am distracted by. I'm so easily distracted. Every little thing. I would have been distracted by James and John's little foot race. That would have distracted me. I would have been distracted by them leaving me, leaving me by the tomb, by myself. That would have distracted me. I certainly would have been distracted by two angels in the tomb. I would have been distracted by my phone vibrating in the midst of this experience. Like everything about this, I'm so easily distracted. Having said this to the angels, she turned around. She's done with them already. Are you Jesus? No. Do you know where he is? No? Done. But we're, but we're angels in a tomb. Like she don't care. Now, why does she turn around? Did she hear something? Did she notice something? We don't know. I think it's because they weren't Jesus. So she turns around and she saw Jesus standing. Now, as the audience, we're allowed to know it's Jesus. John is telling us that because he's trying to be nice to us. But the truth is, she didn't know. Understand, Mary still thought someone had stolen Jesus's body. At this moment, Mary is looking for a dead body. That's all she's thinking about. So, 
she t- Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same thing the angel said. Whom are you seeking? The same thing he asked the people who arrested him. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him that I may take him away. Again, she's looking for a dead body. She thinks maybe for some strange reason the gardener has moved him. That would be super weird. But she's, she's not sure what's going on here. I love the idea of Jesus being mistaken for a gardener. I think it's really intriguing that the creator of heaven and earth, of the whole universe, for whom, by whom, and through whom all things were created, would be mistaken for a gardener. There's something right about that. Like, there's something powerful that the man who created the Garden of Eden and who used to walk around the Garden of Eden with Adam is now resurrected in a garden and is mistaken for the gardener. I I don't know what all to teach from that. It's got to be significant, though. That can't be an accident. So for the sake of time, I want to keep moving on, but I will just tell you, I like that. I really, I just think that's cool. Okay, so he says, why are you weeping? She says, sir, if you've carried him away. So why doesn't she know who it's Jesus? And, and no one knows. Why does she know it's Jesus? One, it, it's still dark maybe, right? I mean, John told us it's dark when they came here. Maybe it's still dark and she can't see him. We forget how dark dark is in this day and age. And um, when we go to Israel, we go out on the Sea of Galilee and I have the boat turn off the lights. Let me just tell you, it's cave dark in there. Out there on the sea, it's dark. When you go inside a place like a garden like this, it's not like there were you know, mercury vapor lights going off in the night or something. It's just dark, pitch black. So maybe that. She's been weeping. Maybe she can't see through her tears. Maybe the blinding light of the angels has blinded her. Maybe Jesus is, is hiding his identity like he does with the people he walks to Emmaus with. We really don't know. But again, she thinks it's been taken. These non-communicative men, John and Peter, did not explain to her how they had come to the conclusion Jesus was resurrected, so she's still stuck. And Jesus says to her, Mary. Now in the Greek, this is Miriam. It may have been Mara. It may have been Maria. There's different, they, they use different versions of the word Mary as well. They're all interpreted, all translated into the word Mary for us. But, but Jesus uses her name. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now notice, she turned. I think she's already turned away from the gardener. Do you know where my Lord is? Have you seen him? Have you taken him? And when the man doesn't give her an immediately, well, yeah, I know where the body is. She's turning away. She's turning away to go back like, oh, I can't, the angels didn't have him. Peter and John left. The gardener doesn't have him. I've got to. And he says, Mary. And immediately she knows who he is. She turns and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher, master, my leader. This is, this is powerful language. She turns to him immediately. This is, this is stunning. This, I, this, look, so I, I wanted to look at this idea of the naming. In Isaiah 43, we have this passage. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This is a prophecy about the people of Israel. By the way, not, it's not a real sweet one. Notice that God is going to put them through the waters and through the rivers and through the fire. They're under his judgment in this. And he's telling them, even in the judgment I'm going to bring on you, I know your name. I 
call you by name. You are mine. This is a statement of authority as well. You're mine. If I need to bring you through the fires, I will. This is very much a parenting kind of language. I'm going to discipline you now. It doesn't change that you're mine. It doesn't change that I know you. Interestingly enough, he goes on with this in regards to Cyrus. In a couple of chapters later, Cyrus, who's an enemy of Israel, who God is going to use to punish Israel, he even tells Cyrus, I know you by name. So those that we are not some nameless piece of equipment that God just uses. When we talk about God using us, we mean we want to be a part of what he's doing. It's not like we become a cog in the system. No, no, I know you by name. Even if you're against me, I know you by name when I make use of you. But what's shocking to me is I was looking, digging through Scripture going, how, what do I relate this to? Like, how do I get this? These are powerful, but there's not getting it. How did I possibly miss John 10? It took like an hour before I find John 10, which we just taught a few months ago. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls them by name and leads them out. This is Jesus being Mary's shepherd. He calls her by name and being his sheep, she immediately knows the sound of his voice. This is John 10 being lived out in front of us. She doesn't know who he is. He looks like the gardener. Then he says her name, teacher. I thought, I thought to myself, how did he say it? You know, I like to recreate that to put us in the moment. How did he say it? And the only answer I could come to, he said it the way he had always said it. The exact way he had always said her name is how he said it. I don't know what that is, but she recognized it immediately. How did she say, teacher? I think she said it the way she always said it. Excited to see him. Extraordinarily, uh, now she's got it. She gets it. He's back. The excitement of the angel suddenly makes sense to her. John and, and Peter running off. Maybe suddenly that makes sense to her. It doesn't matter. What she cares about is, I found him. That's what I was looking for, and I found him. Now, it says in verse 17, this, this, this phrase that we've, we've probably misused for a long time. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling for me to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So here's what's interesting. The question, what do, you, what do you picture here? If you grew up with the King James like I did, then you picture this as Jesus saying to her, do not touch me. That's how the King James decided to interpret this or to translate the Greek here. Do not touch me. And so we get the ESV saying, do not, do not um, cling to me. And so we get medieval paintings like this. One, let's just all take a second and mock the European centrism of it, Right? Um, with blonde-haired, rosy-cheeked Jesus um, and, and red-headed Mary Magdalene, not, not looking super Jewish. Um, so again, the, 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 the tendency of us to, to recreate this, is, it's just wild to me. This is, this is why we misinterpreted a lot of passages for many years and painted stuff like this. But notice the hand. This is really, really common among the paintings of this era from this phrase, from this verse. Do not touch me. There's a hand in the way. Let's show the next one. This one is even like, talk to the hand. Like, he's like, <laughs> this is a stiff arm moment, right? 
And, and by the way, notice the total dispassionate expression on Jesus' face. I mean, there's no emotion there at all. Not, he's like a robot. At least they have dark hair. But other than that, it's still not doing it. He still looks very Roman in his Roman toga, doesn't he? So don't, no, no, don't, because apparently that's how gardeners dress. <laughs> so she mistook that for a gardener. Anyway, she means a fraternity guy, right? That's a, no, so he, he does this like, no, no, hand up. No, don't touch me, right? This, this one's even worse. Now we have the two-hand position. I think this is called the, the cat stance or something. Like he's, he's ready to do some martial arts on her. Stay away from me. Don't touch me. As she's kind of reaching for him, he's, do, he's dodging, doing a Jesus juke. Don't, don't touch me there, right? And, and look how you're, I mean, he looks like a pilgrim, doesn't he? I just, I can't even hardly stand these. I don't know about you. I watch these. I look at these. I'm like, yeah. and there's dozens, I mean, dozens of paintings just like this of Jesus. Like, no, stay away. Don't touch me. Okay, maybe. There's, there's some arguments to be made in the midst of this. Is there something theologically significant going on that Jesus doesn't want? Like, has he not gotten a new body yet? Is he, is he still just spirit or something freaky like that? Is there, is there something strange going on? And it's really hard to, to combine that with the walk to Emmaus where he eats or, or with the fact that in seven days or eight days, Thomas is going to be forced to stick his hands in his side and his wounds. And one Jewish commentator did talk about, like, Maybe this is just Jewish cleanliness that, that Jesus is like, listen, as a, you're a woman who for whatever reason is unclean and I've got to go to the temple, the temple, by the way, not the one in Jerusalem, the one in heaven, and I can't be ceremonially unclean for seven days because in seven, on the eighth day he is going to allow Thomas to touch him. That's the best argument I've heard. There's still a big problem in that, of course, that Jesus is not overly impressed with cleanliness laws anywhere in the New Testament. Um, he handles unclean people and unclean things all the time. I mean, the man hugs lepers. I mean, you're, you're not particularly worried about cleanliness laws if you're doing that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's always tough for me as well. But here's the main problem. This is one of those situations where the Greek has maybe been misunderstood. The tense here is to keep on doing something. And so a better translation might be, do not keep on clinging to me. That's not similar to don't touch me. That's a very different feel to it. That, that Mary, she's been searching frantically for her Lord and she's found him. And so she does exactly what she probably always did when she was reunited with Jesus, was to wrap him up in her arms. And Jesus is, I'm going to explain what I think Jesus is saying here. But I got a new picture for this now. Can we run those? Run the first one. schooler being surprised by his mother coming home from the military, right? I don't know if you've ever watched those, but man, I know I don't cry a lot, but dude, these are just brutal. I can't even watch them at all. But notice, this is a middle school boy. What does he care about everybody else in the room? 
nothing. They cease to exist. He is concerned about one thing. His mother is back for whatever reason, right? And he is clinging to her. She has to like peel him off of her there, right? You want to see another one, don't you? Yeah, you do. One more. Okay, come on, one more. This one was entitled, Marine Surprises Mom at Christmas. Man, you know you're going to cry when you watch this, right? This is a new picture. <laughs> By the way, how marine of him. He props the door open here and then stands at, at, re at parade rest. <laughs> Definitely marine. Right. That's Mary Magdalene, right there. That's Mary Magdalene. She screamed, she squealed, she grabbed Jesus, and he would have smiled just like that. I, I am confident of it. And here, what we have here is, is G, how long she hangs there, I don't know. And Jesus finally goes like, Mary, Mary, don't, don't keep clinging. to. I've got something I need you to do. And so you're going to, I need my legs back. I found, I found one painting, a modern painting, that understands the Greek a little better. That says, this, okay, wait, you're going you're gonna to have to, uh, you know, he's, he has to peel Mary off of him. Don't, don't keep clinging to me because I need you to go back to my brothers and tell them what's happened. Because, by the way, they already left. <laughs> Mary Magdalene. Of seven demons, Mamie, the woman of ill repute, called out by Simon, is the first human being to experience the risen Savior. What an honor to this woman. What an amazing picture to her. What a, what a representation of her devotion, her, her tenacity. She is, she is looking for Jesus, and no one's going to dissuade her. No one's going to distract her. This is what she's looking for. What an incredible picture of that for us in a hyper-distracted culture. That this is what she wants. And by the way, this is also, I'm not going to get into this, but from an apologetics perspective, from a defense of the faith, the fact that it is a woman, especially one maybe of ill repute, who finds Jesus first, is phenomenal defense that this is not made up. Because if you were making up a resurrection, you would, especially when you have the opportunity to say that, that two men of good standing could have been the first to meet Jesus and find Jesus and then be the witnesses on their behalf. Two men versus one woman, no way you would do that. You would never, you would never fictionalize this account. This, this is the way it happened. And by the way, we know from the other Gospels that there are other women there, but apparently there's this moment where Mary, undistracted, un undeterred, finds Jesus first and wraps him up. And Jesus is saying, like, I, I, I need to go to the Father. I, I got some stuff to do, and I need you to go tell the brothers what's happened. Now, we'll pick up with the next verse as we, as we link between the two passages next time, but check this out. The final lesson may be from this passage from Mary, and this just jumped out at me, was the action verbs in this passage. What Mary did. There's a gospel presentation in these action verbs. She wept, she stooped, she looked, she saw, she said, she turned, she saw, she turned, she said, she went, and she announced. This is, there, there is a, there is, I don't know if that's intentional on John's part or not. You never know with Jewish writers. 
They will weave stuff into that in some cool ways. But think about that. Is that where you are? Can you weep over your sin? Can you weep over your brokenness? Can you weep over your need? Will you stoop? Will you bow? Will you lower your eyes? Will you be affected by him? Will you look and keep looking? And as you look, will you see? And when you've seen, will you confess? Will you say it, what you've seen? Once you've said it, will you turn? And when you turn, then what do you see? When you see, do you keep turning? Does that turning complete and then you say it and then you go and then you announce it? There's a gospel presentation woven into these, into these action verbs of Mary that I hope wherever you are in these action verbs that will be challenged by this woman from 2,000 years ago. What a gift. Not only that God has given us the book of John, not only that his son has been resurrected and as, as John Redford said, we get to revel in that as a church especially at Christmas time, that we're going to be reveling in the resurrection at Christmas. Not normally the way you do it, but totally appropriate. Not only that, but then to say, will we look to him and will we announce this? Will we go and will we announce it in whatever that means? Maybe for some of you, that's going to mean with the river ministry and you need to be a part of that. For some of us, it's going to mean there's a lot of different options that we have here. So um, if you will, I want to pray over us. Stand, please, if you will. And I want to pray over us what a gift that we have Jesus, and what a gift that we have John, and what a gift that we have Mary Magdalene. How fun to get to meet her someday and talk about this. What a gift. So I want to thank God for these things and encourage us and let us be challenged by this and by this message um, and by this woman. And help us to be unswerving in our devotion, in our wholehearted pursuit, in our single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. To not be distracted to the left or to the right, straight on. Father, thank you for these men and women who are here today. Thank you for sending uh, Daniel here to pray over us today. And thank you that you have challenged us with this woman. I pray, Lord, that, um, that we would be challenged and that we would listen to the, your Spirit's voice in our minds and our hearts for where we're so easily distracted from your gospel, where we're so easily distracted from your son. And I pray that you would help us to avoid that, to work through that, to set up the disciplines to avoid that, Lord, and that you would help us to keep our eyes on him, fixed on him. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. <coughs> thank you that the son came through the power of the spirit, lived as a human being, experiencing life as a human suffered and died for us. And in the midst of the cosmic battle that is ongoing, cares enough to take a minute to comfort his friend Mary. Thank you that we serve that type of God and that type of Savior who takes care of the big things and yet he knows us by name. Big enough for all of us. Cares enough for each of us. I pray we'll be transformed by that. Lord, if there's anybody here who's never put their faith in the work of your son and in your son to save them, I pray they'll do so today, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, guide us as we sing to you. Speak to our hearts. Help us to listen to you. 
We pray all this in your son's name.